Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Wednesday Night Oral Delights Night. Yes, packed show today or tonight. It's actually packed because last week's wasn't that um, going to strive and set forth this new kind of <laughs> magazine format and put one story out because of hackers, buggers. But yes, we're now back on an even keel and it might be a little bit more than normal and it's just because what I was probably going to use last week didn't get put in. So I want to start off with this.
that's great. I got an email actually from No They Do. It's actually a band. And posing as an undercover robot, the robot's called XJ3. They go into kind of, <laughs> into, or he goes into kind of hamlets or undercover and gets the stories from robots living in, in the world today, you know, and he's wrote about them in the songs. And please check out the website. You know, it's a great website as well and on MySpace. I'll put links to them there on the site as well. So you can kind of get a feel of what, um, and he was mentioned on Boing Boing as well. And all like the kind of the sad stories of like the robots and utensil, you know, like automatic kind of utensily things going on. It fantastic. So how is everyone since I last hit the airwaves with the Ted Chang interview? A f- great guy, you know what I mean? He was like so. He's got such a talent there, but so kind of struggles with it. If you haven't listened, you know, just go back on to last week's show, last Wednesday, Saturday, sorry, last Saturday's show, and check out the interview with Ted Chang because the guy can just write. And there was a great comment on the forums, you know what I mean? Everyone can kind of write, you know, but some people can kind of write great. But to write great, it is a struggle, do you know what I mean? And like, see, so you listen to Ted Chang interview, it is such a struggle for the lad, you know? So what's coming up to tonight, today? Well, got some flash fiction there by Paul de Filippo. We've got, and what I'm going to do as well, we've got like a regular, I've got a regular article coming from Amy Sturgis. Amy's going to, once a month, somewhere around there, a bit like the Peter Watts, just give like, say, a 10, 15 minute little article on science fiction. And tonight it is all about steampunk. Then we have probably one of the short stories of the last, say, 20 years, that has won the awards, so many awards by Terry Bisson. So please look out for that. It has just won award after award after award. Then I've got, which I was quite chuffed about, I've got, you know, like there's the Cory Doctorow books going around, Little Brother has just been released. And actually, that is a fantastic book. You know what I mean? I was kind of a little bit suspect, but I got, you know, I got a review copy there. And I'm actually, I'll try and get it reviewed in the next on the Saturday show. You know what I mean? Because I was so surprised how just how good I enjoyed it. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of, it's what Rainbow's End should have been. You know, the Vernor Vinge, you know, it's all like hackers and everything like that computer thing. And you get such a buzz out of listening to it. But it's what I was hoping Rainbow's End was going to be like. And it, Rainbow's End, like I say, if you remember when me and Kieran did them, it just left me flat. I was all confused and mixed up at the end, but Cory Doctorow's Little Brother, fantastic. So I've got the first 30 minutes of that at the end of the show, but before that, I actually I emailed Cory Doctorow and I said, give us something, you know what I mean, because everyone's kind of putting out that kind of 30-minute kind of chapter, and you might have already listened to it, you know what I mean? It should have been last week. So I said, you know, do us something so I can kind of, you know, put it on beforehand and it just gives a, a kind of more a rounded it's not like kind of promotion thing you know what I mean and he's he's passionate about you know this the DRM that Audible put in so he's got he's sent us in like an audio article as well so have a listen to that got some flash fiction coming up now and I will leave you in the capable hands of Mr Paul de Filippo but a warning there is a little bit of strong language at the beginning of this <laughs> Do you want me to open up the cootie box again? Good God, no. Get that fucking thing out of my sight. We'll do whatever you say. The president smiled like a businessman who had just cornered the market on rain. He took up the cootie box from his desktop. A battered little casket no bigger than a photo printer. 
and tucked it away in a deep, open drawer. Okay, Senator, that's fine. Now that we understand each other, get your ass back there and deliver those votes. I left the Oval Office, angry and saddened. Since the President had gotten his hands on Pandora's box, we were all at his mercy. No one had believed him at first, especially when he kept talking about some old cootie box. We all just assumed he was free associating the way he generally did, like some important matter of state triggering one of his juvenile riffs. But then the reality of the cootie box hit us, thanks to several presidential demonstrations. Apparently the box had been discovered by an NSF-funded archaeological dig in Greece, whence it had made its crooked way into the President's hands. The assorted openings of the cootie box had delivered 9-11, the Iraq War, Katrina, Darfur, the Beslan School Massacre, the Iranian Nuclear Program, and a dozen other disasters right down to the latest season of American Idol. I had witnessed that last horror emerge from the cootie box with my own eyes. There was no way anyone who objected to this administration's mad plans could stand against the threat of further releases of unknown catastrophes. The whole world cringed helplessly. I might have been happier that day if I could have foreseen that the next time the president opened the cootie box, the only thing that got loose was a fatal Texas mountain bike accident. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that. Paul DeFilippo, author of hundreds of short stories. And I actually remember him from years ago, you know, and even still today, kind of writing in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Collections out the Steampunk Trilogy, Fractal Paisley, Lost Pages. Got more stories by Paul DeFilippo as well, so please look out for them. If you'd spot the narration there, it was by our good friend, Dr. Jim Campanella. Thank you, Jim. Links everything to the site. So as part of a regular feature, what I wanted to do was get a couple of people to, or like, on board who could do, like, say, columns, like an audio column. You know, and I've mentioned that um, Peter Watts is doing one, and I was lucky enough to stumble across Amy Sturgis. Amy's actually narrated one of our short stories before, and she's done a few, a few other ones as well. And... You know, she actually teaches courses to students on Lovecraft. I think I've got that right, Lovecraft and, you know, like Lord of the Rings and <laughs> all kind of stuff like that. So I thought, oh, I'll get Amy to, if she doesn't mind, you know, to do like a kind of, just once a month, you know, like a 10, 15 minute column on, you know, whatever she kind of wants to talk about in the science fiction genre. You know, and Amy said, oh, yeah, I'll be up for that. So I thought, oh, that's all right. That's very nice. So the first one is all about steampunk. So I will just let Amy Sturgis take it away. Lately, I've had steampunk on my mind. It began in late March when one of the arbiters of cool, to my mind at least, Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab and its associated Black Phoenix Trading Post debuted a new line of fragrances and shirts centered on the steampunk aesthetic. A few weeks later, I noticed that the science fiction convention Necronomicon which meets in Florida in October and is now in its 27th year, announced that its theme for 2008 is steampunk. And then, lo and behold, the New York Times ran an article on the steampunk phenomenon on May 8th. Clearly, I decided, the universe is conspiring to focus my attention on the subgenre. So, what exactly is steampunk? 
On the whole, it's a recent genre phenomenon, although it boasts roots that reach back to the beginning of modern science fiction. Steampunk is a variety of SF, and here I use SF to mean speculative fiction, encompassing science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Set in a time and or place when steam power is widely prevalent. For example, many works of steampunk are set in the 19th century, or in alternate pasts that show either different developments, for instance, dirigibles or analog computers, or developments at different times. Imagine Victorian England with cyberspace technology. The term steampunk was coined by author K. W. Jeter. Who is also responsible for one of its pioneering works, the 1979 novel *Morlock Knight*? I recently read this fascinating novel, and I think it exemplifies some of the blurring of genre distinctions that the steampunk phenomenon represents. *Morlock Knight* is a sequel to H.G. Wells' 1895 masterpiece *The Time Machine*. *Morlock Knight* picks up, in fact, only minutes after the action in *The Time Machine* ends. The time traveler returns to the future only to have his machine stolen by Morlocks, and not your parents' grunt and groan worker Morlocks, such as he encountered in his previous trip, but their far more sophisticated managers, who decide to use the time machine to pay a visit to London in 1892. The Victorian Londoners get to reap the fruits of what they sowed with their class division during the era of industrialization. Wells no doubt would have appreciated the dramatic irony of the Morlocks coming back to take a bite out of their literal and figurative ancestors. In the midst of his story, already a century in the making, Jeter embeds an even older one, drawing on Arthurian legend: the savior of London, the vanquisher of the Morlocks, must be none other than King Arthur himself. Restored to his full faculties by the power of Merlin and Excalibur, this may sound rather ludicrous, but Jeter makes it work by taking his subject seriously and carefully employing the idea of time travel. In doing so, he raises the stakes of the story, making the tale a morality play in which the soul and legacy of the British people are up for grabs. Will England be remembered as the home of valor and chivalric virtue, or as the birthplace of human degeneration, the motherland of the Morlocks? Is it to be human redemption or species-wide suicide? Add to the mix some high-powered guns, ancient submarines, and the myth of lost Atlantis, and you have yourself a steampunk story. Morlock Knight represents steampunk well, not only because it's a good story, and I do recommend it, but also because it blends science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and because it clearly demonstrates its debt to H.G. Wells. Although steampunk is a newcomer to the SF family, it relies heavily on the foundations of the scientific romances penned by science fiction founders such as Mary Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe. Jules Verne and, of course, H.G. Wells. Even one of my personal favorites, H.P. Lovecraft, has a hand in the formation of the subgenre. Here's how Ruth Laferla of the New York Times put it in the May 8th article, "Steampunk Moves Between Two Worlds." Steampunk, I quote, is loose enough to accommodate a stew of influences, including the streamlined retrofuturism of Flash Gordon. 
and Japanese animation with its goggle-wearing hackers, the post-apocalyptic scavenger style of Mad Max, and vaudeville, burlesque, and the structured gentility of the Victorian age. Devotees of the culture read Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, as well as more recent speculative fiction by William Gibson, James P. Blaylock, and Paul DeFilippo, the author of the Steampunk Trilogy. End quote. If I had to pin down the very first work of modern steampunk before Jeter gave it a name, I'd go for Keith Roberts' exceptional novel Pavan from 1968. The title is an allusion to the 16th century processional dance of the same name, and the novel's text is divided into measures and a coda. Another favorite of mine. This book tells the story of England in the 1968 that developed out of an alternate history timeline, in which Elizabeth I was assassinated in 1588. The Protestant Reformation failed, and the Catholic Church retained supremacy over the land. The novel has the blend of nostalgia, wonder, and alternate technology. In this case, a complex semaphore system that has become the trademark of steampunk. I should point out that other milestones in steampunk include Tim Powers' 1983 classic *The Anubis Gates*, William Gibson and Bruce Sterling's 1990 novel *The Difference Engine*, Philip Pullman's *His Dark Materials* series, which debuted in 1995, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's *The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen* comics, which launched in 1999, and. The brand new 2008 anthology *Steampunk*, edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. The phenomenon has expanded beyond fiction as well, to encompass live-action film, anime, music, and, as I previously mentioned, even fashion and fragrance. If the New York Times is to be believed, I quote: "Steampunk is a trend that is rapidly outgrowing niche status." End quote, and rightly so. Here's one more reason for us science fiction old schoolers to be proud, because if you've read Verne or Wells or Shelley, you can say you were steampunk before steampunk was cool. Amy, thank you very much for that. That was much appreciated. Don't forget, Amy's going to write a regular column once a month, I think. Hopefully, <laughs> just hitting on Amy there to keep Amy. Come on, hurry, hurry, hurry. So yes, please. Pop back and check out Amy's articles once a month. Amy will have to have a name for them. We now come into our kind of the, the main section, the meat of the the show. There, this is the the short story, and it's by Terry Bisson. And you know, when you kind of the certain stories out there that kind of have stood the test of time, and actually, when this one came out, do you know what I mean? This story probably has got the most awards. I don't know if there's many more. If、there's another story out there that's won probably more awards, but it got a damn few. It came out in 1991, won the Hugo Award for best short story. In 1990, it won the Nebula Award for best short story. 1991, Asimov Readers Award, it won that. 1991, it won the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award. 1991, Locus Award. 1991, the SF Chronicle Award. Do you know what I mean? So, and I was, and I just got it the other week, and I kind of, I got a few stories off Terry Bisson, and I kind of, you know, pushed me luck. Then I says, Terry, any chance of you know that one? And straight away he sent it over. I says, no problem. Just you know, mention me and mention the kind of me site and what he's up to in that. 
And like I say, links just go over to have it. Actually, Terry Biston's site is just a wealth of information. Do you know what I mean? And it's so much in there. And if you remember, Terry Biston was the one who, the author who kind of took over writing Canical for Libra, which Walter Miller's second novel. Walter M. Miller actually committed suicide. And that's where Terry Bisson kind of stepped in after Miller committed suicide. Terry Bisson in 1997 kind of finished off St. Leibowitz, Leibowitz and the Wild Horsewoman. And there's a great article, you know, Terry Bisson wrote like a kind of an article of like what, what, all them events. And that was fascinating because, you know, that was great to kind of get an insight when we're actually doing Walter M. Miller's story. Narration today is by Paul Kajiji. He lives in Sydney with his wife. And actually, Paul got in touch with us and said, you know, is there any chance I can maybe, you know, if you need a, a narrator? Came on board there. And what a voice he's got. He's got so, you know, kind of Australian, but he's, he can kind of mix and match, and he can be old, he can be young. So I'm kind of chuffed a bit that kind of Paul's come on board there. Graduated with a BA in Communication Studies in 2001 and was a demonstrator and tutor for Media Studies. Until he got his kind of real job in video editing, he says. And he's currently working actually on a personal animated series entitled Character Development. And he says he's chronicling these in like a week, weekly podcast and blog. And the blog's calling the, the actual podcast the, the Process Diary. So you can kind of head over. And I've been over to the, the site there and you can kind of see what he, you know, his animation and what, what he's doing with stuff like that. So please check out Paul's site. And like I say, you, you, there's some stories that come around and there's some stories that come around and this one I'm really pleased to get, so I will leave you. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa presents... Bears Discover Fire by Terry Bisson I was driving with my brother, the preacher, and my nephew, the preacher's son, on I-65, just north of Bowling Green, when we got a flat. It was a Sunday night, and we had been to visit Mother at the home. We were in my car. The flat caused what you might call knowing groans, since is the old-fashioned one in my family, so they tell me. I fix my own tires. And my brother is always telling me to get the radials and quit buying old tires. But if you know how to mount and fix tires yourself, you can pick them up for almost nothing. Since it was a left rear tire, I pulled over to the left, onto the median grass. The way my caddy stumbled to a stop, I figured the tire was ruined. I guess there's no need asking if you have any of that flat fix in the trunk, said Wallace. Here, son, hold the light, I said to Wallace Jr. He's old enough to want to help, and not old enough yet to think he knows it all. If I'd married and had kids, he's the kind I'd have wanted. An old caddy has a big trunk that tends to fill up like a shed. Mine's a fifty-six. Wallace was wearing his Sunday shirt, so he didn't offer to help while I pulled magazines, fishing tackle, a wooden toolbox, some old clothes, a come-along wrapped in a grass sack, and a tobacco sprayer out of the way, looking for my jack. The spare looked a little soft. The light went out. Shake it, son, I said. It went back on. 
The bumper jack was long gone, but I carry a little quarter-ton hydraulic. I found it under Mother's old Southern livings, 1978 to 1986. I'd been meaning to drop him at the dump. If Wallace hadn't been along, I'd have let Wallace Jr. position the jack under the axle. But I got on my knees and did it myself. There's nothing wrong with a boy learning to change a tire. Even if you're not going to fix and mount them, you're still going to have to change a few in this life. The light went off again before I had the wheel off the ground. I was surprised how dark the night was already. It was late October and beginning to get cool. Shake it again, son, I said. It went back on, but it was weak, flickery. With radials, you just don't have flats, Wallace explained in that voice he uses when he's talking to a number of people at once. In this case, Wallace Jr. and myself. And even when you do, you just squirt them with this stuff called flat fix and you just drive on. $3.95 the can. Uncle Bobby can fix a tie himself, said Wallace Jr., out of loyalty, I presume. Himself, I said from halfway under the car. If it was up to Wallace, the boy would talk like what Mother used to call a helot from the gorges of the mountains, but drive on radials. Shake that light again, I said. It was about gone. I spun the lugs off into the hubcap and pulled the wheel. The tire had blown out along the side wall. Won't be fixing this one, I said. Not that I cared. I have a pile as tall as a man out by the barn. The light went out again. Then came back better than ever as I was fitting the spear over the lugs. Much better, I said. There was a flood of dim, orange, flickery light. But when I turned to find the lug nuts, I was surprised to see that the flashlight the boy was holding was dead. The light was coming from two bears at the edge of the trees, holding torches. They were big, three-hundred-pounders, standing about five feet tall. Wallace Jr. and his father had seen them and were standing perfectly still. It's best not to alarm bears. I fished the lug nuts out of the hubcap and spun them on. I usually like to put a little oil on them, but this time I let it go. I reached under the car and let the jack down and pulled it out. I was relieved to see that the spare was high enough to drive on. I put the jack and the lug wrench in the flat into the trunk. Instead of replacing the hubcap, I put it in there, too. All this time, the bears never made a move. They just held the tortures, whether out of curiosity or helpfulness. There was no way of knowing. It looked like there may have been more bears behind them, in the trees. Opening three doors at once, we got into the car and drove off. Wallace was the first to speak. Looks like bears have discovered fire, he said. When we first took Mother to the home almost four years, well, 47 months ago, she told Wallace and me she was ready to die. Don't worry about me, boys, she whispered, pulling us both down so the nurse wouldn't hear. 
I've drove a million miles and I'm ready to pass over to the other shore. I won't have long to linger here. She drove a consolidated school bus for 39 years. Later, after Wallace left, she told me about her dream. A bunch of doctors were sitting around in a circle discussing her case. One said, We've done all we can for her boys, let's let her go. They all turned their hands up and smiled. When she didn't die that fall, she seemed disappointed. Though as spring came, she forgot about it, as old people will. In addition to taking Wallace and Wallace Jr. to see Mother on Sunday nights, I go myself on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I usually find her sitting in front of the TV, even though she doesn't watch it. The nurses keep it on all the time. They say the old folks like the flickering. It soothes them down. What's this I hear about bears discovering fire, she said on Tuesday. It's true, I told her as I combed her long white hair with the shell comb Wallace had brought her from Florida. Monday there had been a story in the Louisville Courier-Journal, and Tuesday one on NBC or CBS Nightly News. People were seeing bears all over the state, and in Virginia as well. They had quit hibernating and were apparently planning to spend the winter in the medians of the interstates. There have always been bears in the mountains of Virginia, but not here in western Kentucky. Not for almost a hundred years. The last one was killed when Mother was a girl. The theory in the Courier-Journal was that they were following the I-65 down from the forests of Michigan and Canada. But one old man from Allen County, interviewed on nationwide TV, said that they had always been a few bears left back in the hills, and they had come out to join the others now that they had discovered fire. They don't hibernate anymore, I said. They make a fire and keep it going all winter. I declare, Mother said, what'll they think of next? The nurse came to take her tobacco away, which is the signal for bedtime. Every October, Wallace Jr. stays with me while his parents go to camp. I realize how backward that sounds, but there it is. My brother is a minister, House of the Righteous Way, reformed. But he makes two-thirds of his living in real estate. He and Elizabeth go to a Christian success retreat in South Carolina where people from all over the country practice selling things to one another. I know what it's like, not because they've ever bothered to tell me, but because I've seen the revolving equity success plan ads late at night on TV. The school bus let Wallace Jr. off at my house on Wednesday, the day they left. The boy doesn't have to pack much of a bag when he stays with me. He has his own room here. As the eldest in our family, I hung on to the old home place near Smith's Grove. It's getting run down, but Wallace Jr. and I don't mind. He has his own room in Bowling Green, too, but since Wallace and Elizabeth moved to a different house every three months part of the plan. He keeps his twenty-two in his comics, the stuff that's important to a boy his age, in his room here at the home place. It's the room his dad and I used to share. Wallace Jr. is twelve. 
I found him sitting on the back porch that overlooks the interstate when I got home from work. I sell crop insurance. After I changed clothes, I showed him how to break the bead on a tire two ways, with a hammer and by backing a car over it. Like making sorghum, fixing tires by hand is a dying art. The boy caught on fast, though. Tomorrow I'll show you how to mount your tires with the hammer and a tire iron, I said. What I wish is I could see the bears, he said. He was looking across the field to I-65, where the northbound lane cuts off the corner of our field. From the house at night, sometimes the traffic sounds like a waterfall. Can't see the fire in the daytime, I said, but wait till tonight. That night on CBS or... NBC, I forget which is which, they did a special on the Bears, which were becoming a story of nationwide interest. They were seen in Kentucky, West Virginia, Missouri, Illinois, Southern, and of course Virginia. There have always been Bears in Virginia. Some characters there were even talking about hunting them. A scientist said they were heading into the states where there is some snow, but not too much and where there is enough timber in the medians for firewood. He had gone with a video camera, but his shots were just blurry figures sitting around a fire. Another scientist said bears were attracted by the berries on a new bush that grew only in the median of the interstates. He claimed the berries were the first new species in recent history, brought about by the mixing of seeds along the highway. He ate one on TV, making a face, and called it a new berry. A climactic ecologist said the warm winters, there was no snow last winter in Nashville and only one flurry in Louisville, had changed the bears' hibernation cycle and now they were able to remember things from year to year. Bears may have discovered fire centuries ago, he said, but forgot it. Another theory was that they had discovered or remembered fire when Yellowstone burned several years ago. The TV showed more guys talking about the bears than it showed bears, and Wallace Jr. and I lost interest. After the supper dishes were done, I took the boy out behind the house and down to our fence. Across the interstate and through the trees, we could see the light of the bear's fire. Wallace Jr. wanted to go back to the house, get his twenty-two, and go shoot one. And I explained why that would be wrong. Besides, I said, twenty-two wouldn't do much more to a bear than make it mad. Besides, I added, it's illegal to hunt in the medians. The only trick to mounting a tire by hand once you have beaten or pried it onto the rim is setting the bead. You do this by setting the tire upright, sitting on it, and bouncing it up and down between your legs while the air goes in. When the bead sets on the rim, it makes a satisfying pop. On Thursday, I kept Wallace Jr. home from school and showed him how to do this until he got it right. Then we climbed our fence and crossed the field to get a look at the bears. In northern Virginia, according to Good Morning America, the bears were keeping their fires going all day long. Here in West Kentucky, though, it was still warm for late October and... They only stayed around the fires at night. Where they went and what they did in the daytime, I don't know. 
Maybe they were watching from the Newberry bushes as Wallace Jr. and I climbed the government fence and crossed the northbound lanes. I carried an axe, and Wallace Jr. brought his twenty-two, not because he wanted to kill a bear, but because a boy likes to carry some kind of gun. The median was all tangled with brush and vines under the maples, oaks, and sycamores. Even though we were only a hundred yards from the house, I'd never been there, and neither had anyone else that I knew of. It was like a created country. We found a path in the center and followed it down across a slow, short stream that followed out of one grate and into another. The tracks in the gray mud were the first bear signs we saw. There was a musty but not really unpleasant smell. In a clearing under a big hollow beach where the fire had been, we found nothing but ashes. Logs were drawn up in a rough circle and the smell was stronger. I stirred the ashes and found enough coals to start a new flame, so I banked them back the way they had been left. I cut a little firewood and stacked it to one side, just to be neighborly. Maybe the bears were watching us from the bushes even then. There is no way to know. I tasted the one of the new bris and spit it out. It was so sweet it was sour. Just the sort of thing you'd imagine a bear would like. That evening after supper, I asked Wallace Jr. if he might want to go with me to visit Mother. I wasn't surprised when he said yes. Kids have more consideration than folks give them credit for. We found her sitting on the concrete front porch of the home, watching the cars go by on the I-65. The nurse said she had been agitated all day. Wasn't surprised by that either. Every fall as the leaves change, she gets restless. Maybe the word is hopeful again. I brought her into the day room and combed her long white hair. Nothing but bears on TV anymore, the nurse complained, flipping the channels. Wallace Jr. picked up the remote after the nurse left and we watched the CBS or NBC special report about some hunters in Virginia who'd gotten their houses torched. The TV interviewed a hunter and his wife whose $117,500 Shenandoah Valley home had burned. She blamed the bears. He didn't blame the bears, but he was suing for compensation from the state since he had a valid hunting license. The state hunting commissioner came on and said that possession of a hunting license didn't prohibit, enjoin, I think was the word he used, the hunted from striking back. I thought that was a pretty liberal view for a state commissioner. Of course, he had a vested interest in not paying off. I'm not a hunter myself. Don't bother coming on Sunday, Mother told Wallace Jr. with a wink. I've drove a million miles and I've got one hand on the gate. I'm used to her saying stuff like that, especially in the fall, but I was afraid it would upset the boy. In fact, he looked worried after we left and I asked him what was wrong. How could she have drove a million miles? he asked. She'd told him 48 miles a day for 39 years, and he had worked it out on his calculator to be 336,960 miles. Have driven, I said, and it's 48 in the morning and 48 in the afternoon. Plus there was the football trips. 
Plus, old folks exaggerate a little. Mother was the first woman school bus driver in the state. She did it every day and raised a family, too. Dad just farmed. I usually get off the interstate at Smith's Grove. But that night, I drove north, all the way to Horse Cave, and doubled back so Wallace Jr. and I could see the bears' fires. There was not as many as you would think from the TV. One every six or seven miles, hidden back in a clump of trees or under a rocky ledge. Probably they look for water as well as wood. Wallace Jr. wanted to stop, but it's against the law to stop on the interstate, and I was afraid the state police would run us off. There was a card from Wallace in the mailbox. He and Elizabeth were doing fine and having a wonderful time. Not a word about Wallace Jr., but the boy didn't seem to mind. Like most kids his age, he doesn't really enjoy going places with his parents. On Saturday afternoon, the home called my office. Burley belt drought and hail and left word that my mother was gone. I was on the road. I worked Saturdays. It's the only day a lot of part-time farmers are home. My heart literally missed a beat when I called in and got the message. But only a beat. I had long been prepared. It's a blessing, I said when I got the nurse on the phone. You don't understand, the nurse said. Not passed away. Gone. Ran away gone. Your mother has escaped. Mother had gone through the door at the end of the corridor when no one was looking, wedged the door with her comb, and taking a bedspread which belonged to the home. What about her tobacco, I asked. It was gone. That was a sure sign she was planning to stay away. I was in Franklin and it took me less than an hour to get to the home on I-65. The nurse told me that Mother had been acting more and more confused lately. Of course they were going to say that. We looked around the grounds, which is only a half acre with no trees between the interstate and a soybean field. Then they had me leave a message at the sheriff's office. I would have to keep paying for her care until she was officially listed as missing, which would be Monday. It was dark by the time I got back to the house and Wallace Jr. was fixing supper. This just involves opening a few cans already selected and grouped together with a rubber band. I told him his grandmother had gone, and he nodded, saying, She told us she would be. I called South Carolina and left a message. There was nothing more to be done. I sat down and tried to watch TV, but there was nothing on. Then I looked out the back door and saw the firelight twinkling through the trees across the northbound lane of I-65 and realized I just might know where to find her. It was definitely getting colder, so I got my jacket. I told the boy to wait by the phone in case the sheriff called, but when I looked back halfway across the field, there he was behind me. He didn't have a jacket. I let him catch up. He was carrying his twenty-two, and I made him leave it leaning against our fence. It was harder to climb the government fence in the dark at my age than it had been in the daylight. I am sixty-one. The highway was busy with cars heading south and trucks heading north. Crossing the shoulder, I got my pants cuff wet on the long grass already wet with dew. It was actually bluegrass. The first few feet into the trees, it was pitch black, and the boy grabbed my hand. Then it got lighter. At first, I thought it was the moon. 
But it was the high beams shining like moonlight in the treetops, allowing Wallace Jr. and me to pick our way through the brush. We soon found the path and its familiar bear smell. I was wary about approaching the bears at night. If we stayed on the path, we might run into one in the dark. But if we went through the bushes, we might be seen as intruders. I wondered if maybe we shouldn't have brought the gun. We stayed on the path. The light seemed to drip down from the canopy of the woods like rain. This was going to be easy, especially if we didn't try to look at the path but let our feet find their own way. Then, through the trees, I saw their fire. The fire was mostly of sycamore and beech branches, the kind that puts out very little heat or light and lots of smoke. The bears hadn't learned the ins and outs of wood yet. They did okay at tending it, though. A large cinnamon-brown, northern-looking bear was poking the fire with a stick, adding a branch now and then from a pile at his side. The others sat around in a loose circle on the logs. Most were smaller, blacker honey bears. One was a mother with cubs. Some were eating berries from a hubcap. Not eating, but just watching the fire, my mother sat amongst them with the bedspread from the home around her shoulders. If the bears noticed us, they didn't let on. Mother patted a spot right next to her on the log, and I sat down. A bear moved over to let Wallace Jr. sit on her other side. The bear smell is rank, but not unpleasant once you get used to it. It's not like a barn smell, but wilder. I leaned over to whisper something to Mother, and she shook her head. It would be rude to whisper around these creatures that don't possess the power of speech. She let me know without speaking. Wallace Jr. was silent, too. Mother shared the bedspread with us, and we sat for what seemed like hours looking into the fire. The big bear tended the fire, breaking up the dry branches by holding one end and stepping on them like people do. He was good at keeping it going at the same level. Another bear poked the fire from time to time, but the others left it alone. It looked like only a few of the bears knew how to use fire and were carrying the others along. But isn't that how it is with everything? Every once in a while, a smaller bear walked into the circle of firelight with an armload of wood and dropped it onto the pile. Median wood had a silvery cast like driftwood. Wallace Jr. isn't fidgety like a lot of kids. I found it pleasant to sit and stare into the fire. I took a little piece of Mother's Red Man, though I don't generally chew. It was no different from visiting her at the home, only more interesting because of the bears. There were about eight or ten of them. Inside the fire itself, things weren't so dull either. Little dramas were being played out as fiery chambers were created and then destroyed in crashing of sparks. My imagination ran wild. I looked around the circle at the bears and wondered what they saw. Some had their eyes closed. Though they were gathered together, their spirits still seemed solitary, as if each bear was sitting alone in front of its own fire. The hubcap came around and we all took some new berries. I don't know about mother, but I just pretended to eat mine. Wallace Jr. made a face and spat his out. When he went to sleep, I wrapped the bedspread around all three of us. 
it was getting colder, and we were not provided like the bears with fur. I was ready to go home, but not mother. She pointed up towards the canopy of trees where a light was spreading, and then pointed to herself. Did she think it was angels approaching from on high? It was only the high beams of some southbound truck, but she seemed mighty pleased. Holding her hand, I felt it grow colder and colder in mine. Wallace Jr. woke me up by tapping on my name. It was passed on, and his grandmother had died sitting on the lawn between us. The fire was banked up, and the bears were gone, and someone was crashing straight through the woods, ignoring the path. It was Wallace. Two state troopers were right behind him. He was wearing a white shirt, and I realized it was Sunday morning. Underneath his sadness on learning of his mother's death, he looked peeved. The troopers were sniffing the air and nodding. The bear smell was still strong. Wallace and I wrapped mother in the bedspread and started with her body back to the highway. The troopers stayed behind and scattered the bear's fire ashes and flung their firewood away into the bushes. It seemed a petty thing to do. They were like bears themselves, each one solitary in his own uniform. There was Wallace's old 98 on the median, with its radial tires looking squashed on the grass. In front of it was a police car with a trooper standing beside it, and behind it a funeral home hearse, also an old's 98. First report we've had of them bothering old folks, the trooper said to Wallace. That's not hardly what happened at all, I said, but nobody asked me to explain. They have their own procedures. Two men in suits got out of the hearse and opened the rear door. That, to me, was the point at which Mother departed this life. After we put her in, I put my arms around the boy. He was shivering even though it wasn't that cold. Sometimes death will do that, especially at dawn with the police around and the grass wet, even when it comes as a friend. We stood for a minute watching the cars and trucks pass. It's a blessing, Wallace said. It's surprising how much traffic there is at 6.22 a.m. That afternoon I went back to the median and cut a little firewood to replace what the troopers had flung away. I could see the fire through the trees that night. I went back two nights later, after the funeral. The fire was going, and it was the same bunch of bears as far as I could tell. I sat around with them a while, but it seemed to make them nervous, so I went home. I had taken a handful of newberries from the hubcap, and on Sunday... I went with the boy and arranged them on Mother's grave. 
I tried again, but it's no use. You can't eat them, unless you're a bear. So there you go. What a story. Don't forget, copyright is Terry Bisson and all rights him. Don't go trying to flog that, sell that, anything like that. Thank you very much, Terry, for that. It was most appreciated. Next up on the sofa is the article, audio article by Corey Doctorow on everything that's kind of really upsetting him with the DRM when it's kind of it's it's placed into the audio books from Audible. So I will hand you over to Corey Doctorow. Hi there, this is Corey Doctorow coming to you live from my parents' living room in Toronto, where I'm uh, visiting with my newborn daughter uh, and launching my new young adult novel, Little Brother, uh, a novel about hacker kids who fight the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, This is a book about kids who discover that the only way to be secure is to understand how the security around them works and to maximize their freedom using technology, and that freedom is the most important security measure of all. And I wrote it because I thought the kids were moving back in time to a time back in the 60s and the 50s when computers were thought of as things that were used to abet state control over your life, to abet the uh, regimentation of us all. And I thought that that was a really depressing turn of events, because when I discovered personal computers, when I was a, a young boy, uh, they changed my life. They made me realize that I could change the world, that I could act directly and indirectly on the world around me, visit places and meet people that I could never see before, could never have met. And um, I thought that the idea that kids would grow up thinking of computers as things that spied on them and snitched on them and controlled them was a really miserable, uh, awful kind of future to be heading towards. So the book is available from Tor Books. It's a hardcover and a traditional printed book in the young adult section of your local friendly bookstore. Uh, And it's also available as a free text download, as with all my books. Um, And it's an audio book as well. I don't know if you've noticed, but audiobooks have had a real renaissance lately. They're everywhere, online and available, and in numbers that you that haven't been seen for, for years and years and years. Uh, and um, it's strange because they're going all digital, so the CDs are disappearing. Random House Audio did the audio of this book, and they're not even making a CD. They're only selling it online. Now, the problem has been that all these audiobooks are published with DRM on them. That's the anti-copying stuff that's supposed to stop you from, you know, making illicit copies and sharing them with millions of your friends. It's not very good at stopping you from doing that, but it is really good at locking you into proprietary technology, a proprietary player, and so on. Now, I'm a big audiobook fan, and I'd spent thousands of dollars with one of these companies, Audible, um, and then I switched platforms from the Mac to Linux, and there's no Audible player for Linux. There's no open-source player for Audible. And so I had to rip all of my Audible audiobooks to MP3, and it took a month running three computers full-time to convert those books, to, to save my investment. And, you know, it really hit home for me that, that these books are infected with DRM, and that once they're infected uh, and you buy them, you get infected too. And so I thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to let my audiobook be sold with DRM. You can hear my little daughter in the back crying. She, she doesn't like DRM either. Uh, I was going to let my books be sold with DRM, and uh, I, I didn't want them used as kind of bait on some sleazy DRM vendor's hook to, to suck you in. 
And Random House Audio, to their credit, they were they were good enough to promise me that they would not sell this with DRM, that it would only be available as an MP3 download, as an AUG download, as an M4A download, or whatever, but not as a DRM-locked file. Now, there's only one problem with that, and that's that the single largest audiobook seller in the world, which is Audible, will only sell audiobooks if you put DRM on them. Even if the publisher and the author don't want the DRM, they only sell it with DRM. What's more, they're not only the exclusive audiobook provider to Apple and iTunes, but Amazon bought them, and they're the exclusive provider to, to Amazon, too. Amazon won't sell audiobooks in their MP3 store. So literally, the only delivery mechanism that uh, most people know about, the only stores that sell a lot of audiobooks from major publishers... Um, are DRM only. They'll only sell you these crippled, locked, proprietary files. So uh, Random House and I found this vendor, actually Random House found this vendor, a great company called Zippity, and they'll sell you the book as an MP3. And there's a little flash widget you can embed in your... In your um, uh, in your in your file, and you can you can share that around your blog, and you can share that flash applet around, and lets people preview it and buy it straight from your blog and stuff. And I think it's it's important not just because I'm self interested in having this audiobook spread around and you know making some money from people buying it, but I think it's really important that people support open audiobook formats because we're headed into a world where it becomes normal that everyone who listens to audiobooks gets sucked into this DRM business model. And one of the biggest problems with that is that uh, the, some of the largest customers for audiobooks are people with sensory disabilities, people who are blind or who have dyslexia, or even people who have uh, physical disabilities that prevent them from turning pages, and children, right, who love to be read to. And so those two groups of very vulnerable people are being sucked into the stupid DRM crap. And it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts that these companies won't sell the stuff without DRM. So I think we need to start validating this. And, and one way you can do that is by supporting this book, which is the first book from a major audiobook publisher to be sold exclusively in non-DRM form online as a download. Uh, now, I know that that sounds self-interested, and of course, if there were another one of these books, I'd, I'd encourage you to buy that one too. But I hope you'll at least check this out. And, and many thanks to the Spaceship Sofa people for being kind enough to include the excerpt you're about to hear in their feed. Um, and actually, that, that excerpt is um, par for the course, because as with all of my stuff, there's some freedom embedded in the audiobook. Uh, that's a license that allows you to take 30 minutes of the book once you buy it and remix it and share it with as many people as you want, however you want, provided it's non-commercial. So there's a, there's a little bit of a kind of pseudo-creative commons license that goes with the book as well that encourages you to share it and make free use of it. So this is me signing off. Um, I've got to change the baby, it looks like. And uh, I hope that you uh, enjoyed this excerpt. Bye. Now, I'm going to have to cut Cory Docket Row some slack there. He got our name wrong. He got the Starship Sofa name wrong. And give me due, mind you. When I emailed him, I mean, he must be all kind of different times and everything like that for the little one. When he's up and he's actually in Canada as well. I think he must have been answering my emails around about five in the morning and I said, you know, will you do this bloody little bit article for us, you know? So I'm guessing he was just all a cock with times and stuff like that. So there you go, cut the lad some slack. Next is his, the first chapter or the first 30 minutes of his audiobook, Little Brother. And like I say, when I got it, you know, it was actually lovely, I got the, the full, uh, the full uh, copy of it. I was thinking, oh, young adults, and I've read a few young adults, you know what I mean? The Owen Colfer, I think it is, you know, the Artemis, Artemis books. I've read a number of short stories, but I was thinking, I wonder if this is going to be the kind of 
not lower than what I was kind of basing my standards on, but just you know maybe a too easy a read or a too kind of you know you get that kind of label. And I was thinking, oh, I don't know where that's going to go. So I kind of started it and bang straight into it, and it was just fantastic. You know what I mean? Like I say earlier on, it's what Rainbow's End should have been. I thought it was a cracking read. Or listen, do you know? It just kind of zip, and it, it was exciting because there was kind of loads of stuff where it all is about computers, and you know, and actually, it's a bit of a double-edged sword for me because at the end of the book, there's actually some articles by hackers and kind of people who's in the security, and here having just been hacked, the site, you know what I mean? It's like a kind of cutting-edge sword. That is like, oh, that didn't ring too good, but you know, if you and it actually, it's not that. Expensive the book, I think it's twenty dollars. Do you know what I mean? Which is kind of a damn sight cheaper than what Audible normally charges or iTunes for a book. So there you go. So I'll play the first thirty minutes of it, and like, is there anything you want to know? You know, pop over the forums and voice your opinions on there. So I hope you enjoy this little thirty minutes from Little Brother by Corey Dockertrow. Listening Library presents Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. Read for you by Kirby Hayborn. Text copyright 2008 by Cory Doctorow. Production copyright 2008, Random House, Inc. All rights reserved. Chapter 1 I'm a senior at Cesar Chavez High in San Francisco's Sunny Mission District, and that makes me one of the most surveilled people in the world. My name is Marcus Yallo, but back when this story starts, I was going by W1N5T0N, pronounced Winston. Not pronounced W1N5T0N, unless you're a clueless disciplinary officer who's far enough behind the curve that you still call the Internet the Information Superhighway. I know just such a clueless person, and his name is Fred Benson, one of three vice principals at Cesar Chavez. He's a sucking chest wound of a human being, but if you're going to have a jailer, better a clueless one than one who's really on the ball. Marcus Yallo, he said over the PA one Friday morning. The PA isn't very good to begin with, and when you combine that with Benson's habitual mumble— you get something that sounds more like someone struggling to digest a bad burrito than a school announcement. But human beings are good at picking their names out of audio confusion. It's a survival trait. I grabbed my bag and folded my laptop three-quarters shut. I didn't want to blow my downloads. And got ready for the inevitable. Report to the administration office immediately. My social studies teacher, Mrs. Galvez rolled her eyes at me, and I rolled my eyes back at her. The man was always coming down on me, just because I go through school firewalls like wet Kleenex, spoof the gate recognition software, and nuke the snitch chips they track us with. Galvez is a good type, anyway. Never holds that against me, especially when I'm helping get with her webmail so she can talk to her brother who's stationed in Iraq. My boy Daryl gave me a smack on the ass as I walked past, I've known Daryl since we were still in diapers and escaping from play school, and I've been getting him into and out of trouble the whole time. I raised my arms over my head like a prize fighter and made my exit from social studies, 
and began the perp walk to the office. I was halfway there when my phone went. That was another no-no. Phones are muy prohibido at Chavez High, but why should that stop me? I ducked into the toilet and shut myself in the middle stall. The farthest stall is always grossest because so many people head straight for it, hoping to escape the smell and the squick. The smart money and good hygiene is down the middle. I checked the phone. My home PC had sent it an email to tell it that there was something new up on Harajuku Fun Madness, which happens to be the best game ever invented. I grinned. Spending Fridays at school was to suck anyway, and I was glad of the excuse to make my escape. I ambled the rest of the way to Benson's office and tossed him a wave as I sailed through the door. If it isn't W1N5T0N, he said. Frederick Benson. Social Security Number 545032343. Date of birth, August 15th, 1962. Mother's maiden name, Debona. Hometown, Petaluma. Is a lot taller than me. I'm a runty five foot eight inches while he stands six feet seven inches and his college basketball days are far enough behind him that his chest muscles have turned into saggy man boobs that were painfully obvious through his freebie.com polo shirts. He always looks like he's about to slam dunk your ass, and he's really into raising his voice for dramatic effect. Both these start to lose their efficacy with repeated application. Sorry. Nope, I said. I never heard of this R2-D2 character of yours. W1N5T0N, he said, spelling it out again. He gave me a hairy eyeball and waited for me to wilt. Of course it was my handle, and had been for years. It was the identity I used when I was posting on message boards where I was making my contributions to the field of applied security research. You know, like sneaking out of school and disabling the minder tracer on my phone. But he didn't know that this was my handle. Only a small number of people did, and I trusted them all to the end of the earth. Um, not ringing any bells, I said. I'd done some pretty cool stuff around school using that handle. I was very proud of my work on snitch tag killers, and if he could link the two identities, I'd be in trouble. No one at school ever called me W1N5T0N or even Winston, not even my pals. It was Marcus or nothing. Benson settled down behind his desk and tapped his class ring nervously on his blotter. He did this whenever things started to go bad for him. Poker players call stuff like this a tell, something that lets you know what's going on in the other guy's head. I knew Benson's tells backwards and forwards. Marcus, I hope you realize how serious this is. I will just as soon as you explain what this is, sir. I always say sir to authority figures when I'm messing with them. It's my own tell. He shook his head at me and looked down. Another tell. Any second now he was going to start shouting at me. Listen, kiddo, it's time you came to grips with the fact that we know about what you've been doing and that we're not going to be lenient about it. You're going to be lucky if you're not expelled before this meeting is through. Do you want to graduate? Mr. Benson, 
You still haven't explained what the problem is. He slammed his hand down on the desk and then pointed his finger at me. The problem, Mr. Yellow, is that you've been engaged in criminal conspiracy to subvert this school's security system, and you have supplied security countermeasures to your fellow students. You know that we expelled Graciela Uriarte last week for using one of your devices. Uriarte had gotten a bad rap. She'd bought a radio jammer from a head shop near the 16th Street BART station, and it had set off the countermeasures in the school hallway. Not my doing, but I felt for. And you think I'm involved in that? We have reliable intelligence indicating that you are W1N5T0N. Again, he spelled it out. And I began to wonder if he hadn't figured out that the one was an I and the five was an S. We know that this W1N5T0N character is responsible for the theft of last year's standardized tests. That actually hadn't been me, but it was a sweet hack, and it was kind of flattering to hear it attributed to me. And therefore liable for several years in prison unless you cooperate with me. You have reliable intelligence? I'd like to see it. He glowered at me. Your attitude isn't going to help you. If there's evidence, sir, I think you should call the police and turn it over to them. It sounds like this is a very serious matter, and I wouldn't want to stand in the way of a proper investigation by the duly constituted authorities. You want me to call the police. And my parents, I think. That would be for the best. We stared at each other across the desk. He'd clearly expected me to fold the second he dropped the bomb on me. I don't fold. I have a trick for staring down people like Benson. I look slightly to the left of their heads and think about the lyrics to old Irish folk songs, the kind with three hundred verses. It makes me look perfectly composed and unworried. And the wing was on the bird, and the bird was on the egg, and the egg was in the nest, and the nest was on the leaf, and the leaf was on the twig, and the twig was on the branch, and the branch was on the limb, and the limb was in the tree, and the tree was in the bog, the bog down in the valley-o, hi-ho, the rattling bog, the bog down in the valley-o. You can return to class now, he said. I'll call on you once the police are ready to speak to you. Are you going to call them now? The procedure for calling in the police is complicated. I had hoped that we could settle this fairly and quickly, but since you insist... I can wait while you call them is all, I said. I don't mind. He tapped his ring again, and I braced for the blast. Go! he yelled. Get the hell out of my office, you miserable little... I got out, keeping my expression neutral. He wasn't going to call the cops. If he'd had enough evidence to go to the police with, he would have called them in the first place. He hated my guts. I figured he'd heard some unverified gossip and hoped to spook me into confirming it. I moved down the corridor, lightly and sprightly, keeping my gait even and measured for the gait recognition cameras. These had been installed only a year before, and I loved them for their sheer idiocy. Beforehand, we'd had face recognition cameras covering nearly every public space in school, but a court ruled that was unconstitutional. 
So Benson and a lot of other paranoid school administrators had spent our textbook dollars on these idiot cameras that were supposed to be able to tell one person's walk from another. Yeah, right. I got back to class and sat down again, Ms. Galvez warmly welcoming me back. I unpacked the school's standard-issue machine and got back into classroom mode. The school books were the snitchiest technology of them all, logging every keystroke, watching all the network traffic for suspicious keywords, counting every click, keeping track of every fleeting thought you put out over the net. We'd gotten them in my junior year, and it only took a couple months for the shininess to wear off. Once people figured out that these free laptops worked for the man and showed a never-ending parade of obnoxious ads to boot, they suddenly started to feel very heavy and burdensome. Cracking my school book had been easy. The crack was online within a month of the machine showing up, and there was nothing to it. Just download a DVD image, burn it, stick it in the school book, and boot it while holding down a bunch of different keys at the same time. The DVD did the rest, installing a whole bunch of hidden programs on the machine, programs that would stay hidden even when the Board of Ed did its daily remote integrity checks of the machines. Every now and again, I had to get an update for the software to get around the Board's latest tests, but it was a small price to pay to get a little control over the box. I fired up I Am Paranoid, the secret instant messenger that I used when I wanted to have an off-the-record discussion right in the middle of class. Daryl was already logged in. The game's afoot. Something big is going down with Harajuku Fun Madness, dude. You in? No freaking way. If I get caught ditching a third time, I'm expelled. Man, you know that. We'll go after school. You've got lunch and then study hall, right? That's two hours. Plenty of time to run down this clue and get back before anyone misses us. I'll get the whole team out. Harajuku Fun Madness is the best game ever made. I know I already said that, but it bears repeating. It's an ARG, an alternate reality game, and the story goes that a gang of Japanese fashion teens discovered a miraculous healing gem at the temple in Harajuku, which is basically where cool Japanese teenagers invented every major subculture for the past ten years. They're being hunted by evil monks, the Yakuza a.k.a. the Japanese Mafia, aliens, tax inspectors, parents, and a rogue artificial intelligence. They slip the players' coded messages that we have to decode and use to track down clues that lead to more coded messages and more clues. Imagine the best afternoon you've ever spent prowling the streets of a city, checking out all the weird people, funny handbills, street maniacs, and funky shops, now add a scavenger hunt to that, one that requires you to research crazy old films and songs and teen culture from around the world and across time and space, and it's a competition with the winning team of four taking a grand prize of ten days in Tokyo, chilling on Harajuku Bridge, geeking out in Akihabara, and taking home all the Astro Boy merchandise you can eat. Except that he's called Adam Boy in Japan, that's Harajuku Fun Madness, and once you've solved a puzzle or two, you'll never look back. No man, just no.
No, don't even ask. I need you, D. You're the best I've got. I swear I'll get us in and out without anyone knowing it. You know I can do that, right? I know you can do it. So you're in? Hell no. Come on, Daryl. You're not going to your deathbed wishing you'd spent more study periods sitting in school. I'm not going to my deathbed wishing I'd spent more time playing ARGs either. Yeah, but don't you think you might go to your deathbed wishing you'd spent more time with Vanessa Pock? Van was part of my team. She went to a private girls' school in the East Bay, but I knew she'd ditch to come out and run the mission with me. Daryl has had a crush on her literally for years, even before puberty endowed her with many lavish gifts. Daryl had fallen in love with her mind. Sad, really. You suck. You're coming? He looked at me and shook his head. Then he nodded. I winked at him and set to work getting in touch with the rest of my team. I wasn't always into arguing. I have a dark secret. I used to be a LARPer. LARPing is live-action role-playing, and it's just about what it sounds like. Running around in costume, talking in a funny accent, pretending to be a super spy or a vampire or a medieval knight. It's like Capture the Flag in Monster Drag, with a bit of drama club thrown in, and the best games were the ones we played in scout camps out of town in Sonoma or down on the peninsula. Those three-day epics could get pretty hairy with all-day hikes, epic battles with foam and bamboo swords, casting spells by throwing beanbags and shouting, Fireball! and so on. Good fun, if a little goofy. Not nearly as geeky as talking about what your elf planned on doing as you sat around a table loaded with Diet Coke cans and painted miniatures, and more physically active than going into a mouse coma in front of a massively multiplayer game at home. The thing that got me into trouble were the mini-games in the hotels. Whenever a science fiction convention came to town, some LARPer would convince them to let us run a couple of six-hour mini-games at the con, piggybacking on their rental of the space. Having a bunch of enthusiastic kids running around in costume lent color to the event, and we got to have a ball among people even more socially deviant than us. The problem with hotels is that they have a lot of non-gamers in them, too. They're not just sci-fi people. Normal people. From states that begin and end with vowels. On holidays. And sometimes those people misunderstand the nature of a game. Let's just leave it at that, okay? Class ended in ten minutes, and that didn't leave me with much time to prepare. The first order of business was those pesky gate recognition cameras. Like I said, they'd started out as face recognition cameras, but those had been ruled unconstitutional. As far as I know, no court has yet determined whether these gate cams are any more legal, but until they do, we're stuck with them. Gate is a fancy word for the way you walk. People are pretty good at spotting gates. Next time you're on a camping trip, check out the bobbing of the flashlight as a distant friend approaches you. Chances are you can identify him just from the movement of the light, the characteristic way it bobs up and down that tells our monkey brains that this is a person approaching us. 
Gate recognition software takes pictures of your motion, tries to isolate you in the pics as a silhouette, and then tries to match the silhouette to a database to see if it knows who you are. It's a biometric identifier like fingerprints or retina scans, but it's got a lot more collisions than either of those. A biometric collision is when a measurement matches more than one person. Only you have your fingerprint, but you share your gait with plenty other people. Not exactly, of course. Your personal inch-by-inch -inch walk is yours and yours alone. The problem is your inch-by-inch -inch walk changes based on how tired you are, what the floor is made of, whether you pulled your ankle playing basketball, and whether you've changed your shoes lately. So the system kind of fuzzes out your profile, looking for people who walk kind of like you. There are a lot of people who walk kind of like you. What's more, it's easy not to walk kind of like you. Just take one shoe off. Of course, you'll always walk like you with one shoe off in that case, so the cameras will eventually figure out that it's still you, which is why I prefer to inject a little randomness into my attacks on gate recognition. I put a handful of gravel into each shoe. Cheap and effective, and no two steps are the same. Plus, you get a great reflexology foot massage in the process. I kid. Reflexology is about as scientifically useful as gait recognition. The cameras used to set off an alert every time someone they didn't recognize stepped onto campus. This did not work. The alarm went off every ten minutes when the mailman came by, when a parent dropped in, when the groundspeople went to work fixing up the basketball court, when a student showed up wearing new shoes. So now it just tries to keep track of who's where, when. If someone leaves by the school gates during classes, their gate is checked to see if it kind of sort of matches any student gate. And if it does, whoop, 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 ring the alarm. Chavez High is ringed with gravel walkways. I like to keep a couple hands full of rocks in my shoulder bag, just in case. I silently pass Daryl ten or fifteen pointy little bastards, and we both loaded our shoes. Class was about to finish up, and I realized that I still hadn't checked the Harajuku Fun Madness site to see where the next clue was. I'd been a little hyper-focused on the escape and hadn't bothered to figure out where we were escaping to. I turned to my school book and hit the keyboard. The web browser we used was supplied with the machine. It was a locked-down spyware version of Internet Explorer, Microsoft's crashware turd that no one under the age of 40 used voluntarily. I had a copy of Firefox on the USB drive built into my watch, but that wasn't enough. The schoolbook ran Windows Vista for Schools, an antique operating system designed to give school administrators the illusion that they controlled the programs their students could run. But Vista for Schools is its own worst enemy. There are a lot of programs that Vista for Schools doesn't want you to be able to shut down. Keyloggers, sensorware, and these programs run in a special mode that makes them invisible to the system. You can't quit them because you can't even see they're there. Any program whose name starts with $SYS$ is invisible to the operating system. It doesn't show up on listings of the hard drive nor in the process monitor, so my copy of Firefox was called 
dollar sign, S-Y-S, dollar sign, Firefox. And as I launched it, it became invisible to Windows, and thus invisible to the network's snoopware. Now that I had an indie browser running, I needed an indie network connection. The school's network logged every click in and out of the system, which was bad news if you were planning on surfing over to the Harajuku Fun Madness site for some extracurricular fun. The answer is something ingenious called Tor, the Onion Router. An Onion Router is an Internet site that takes requests for web pages and passes them on to other Onion Routers and on to other Onion Routers until one of them finally decides to fetch the page and pass it back through the layers of the Onion until it reaches you. The traffic to the Onion Routers is encrypted, which means that the school can't see what you're asking for, and the layers of the onion don't know who they're working for. There are millions of nodes. The program was set up by the U.S. Office of Naval Research to help their people get around the censorware in countries like Syria and China, which means that it's perfectly designed for operating in the confines of an average American high school. Tor works because the school has a finite blacklist of naughty addresses we aren't allowed to visit, and the addresses of the nodes change all the time. No way could the school keep track of them all. Firefox and Tor together made me into the invisible man, impervious to Board of Ed snooping, free to check out the Harajuku FM site and see what was up. There it was, a new clue. Like all Harajuku Fun Madness clues, it had a physical, online, and mental component. The online component was a puzzle you had to solve, one that required you to research the answers to a bunch of obscure questions. This batch included a bunch of questions on the plots in Dojinshi. Those are comic books drawn by fans of manga, Japanese comics. They can be as big as the official comics that inspire them, but they're a lot weirder, with crossover storylines and sometimes really silly songs and action. Lots of love stories, of course. Everyone loves to see their favorite tunes hook up. I'd have to solve those riddles later, when I got home. They were easiest to solve with the whole team, downloading tons of doujinshi files and scouring them for answers to the puzzles. I'd just finished scrapbooking all the clues when the bell rang and we began our escape. I surreptitiously slid the gravel down the side of my short boots, ankle-high blundstones from Australia, Great for running and climbing, and the easy slip-on, slip-off laceless design makes them convenient at the never-ending metal detectors that are everywhere now. We also had to evade physical surveillance, of course, but that gets easier every time they add a new layer of physical snoopery. All the bells and whistles lull our beloved faculty into a totally false sense of security. We surfed the crowd down the hallways, heading for my favorite side exit. We were halfway along when Daryl hissed, Crap! I forgot! I've got a library book in my bag! You're kidding me, I said, and hauled him into the next bathroom we passed. Library books are bad news. Every one of them has an ARFID, radio frequency ID tag, glued into its binding, which makes it possible for the librarians to check out the books by waving them over a reader and lets a library shelf tell you if any of the books on it are out of place. But it also lets the school track where you are at all times. 
It was another of those legal loopholes. The courts wouldn't let the schools track us with ARFIDs, but they could track library books and use the school records to tell them who was likely to be carrying which library book. I had a little Faraday pouch in my bag. These are little wallets lined with a mesh of copper wires that effectively block radio energy, silencing ARFIDs. But the pouches were made for neutralizing ID cards and toll book transponders, not books like... Introduction to physics? I groaned. The book was the size of a dictionary. Chapter 2 I'm thinking of majoring in physics when I go to Berkeley, Daryl said. His dad taught at the University of California at Berkeley, which meant he'd get free tuition when he went. And there'd never been any question in Daryl's household about whether he'd go. Fine, but couldn't you research it online? My dad said I should read it. Besides, I didn't plan on committing any crimes today. Skipping school isn't a crime. It's an infraction. They're totally different. What are we going to do, Marcus? Well, I can't hide it, so I'm going to have to nuke it. Killing Arfids is a dark art. No merchant wants malicious customers going for a walk around the shop floor and leaving behind a bunch of lobotomized merchandise that is missing its invisible barcode, so the manufacturers have refused to implement a kill signal that you can radio to an ARFID to get it to switch off. You can reprogram ARFIDs with the right box, but I hate doing that to library books. It's not exactly tearing pages out of a book, but it's still bad, since a book with a reprogrammed ARFID can't be shelved and can't be found. It just becomes a needle in a haystack. That left me with only one option. Nuking the thing. Literally. Thirty seconds in a microwave will do in pretty much every ARFID on the market. And because the ARFID wouldn't answer at all when D checked it back in at the library, they'd just print a fresh one for it and recode it with the book's catalog info, and it would end up clean and neat back on its shelf. All we needed was a microwave. Give it another two minutes and the teacher's lounge will be empty, I said. Daryl grabbed his book and headed for the door. Forget it. No way. I'm going to class. I snagged his elbow and dragged him back. Come on, Dee. Easy now. It'll be fine. The teacher's lounge... Maybe you weren't listening, Marcus. If I get busted just once more, I am expelled. You hear that? Expelled. You won't get caught, I said. The one place a teacher wouldn't be after this period was the lounge. We'll go in the back way. The lounge had a little kitchenette off to one side, with its own entrance for teachers who just wanted to pop in and get a cup of joe. The microwave which always reeked of popcorn and spilled soup, was right in there, on top of the miniature fridge. Daryl groaned. I thought fast. Look, the bell's already rung. If you go to study hall now, you'll get a late slip. Better not to show it all at this point. I can infiltrate and exfiltrate any room on this campus, D. You've seen me do it. I'll keep you safe, bro. He groaned again. That was one of Daryl's tells. Once he starts groaning, he's ready to give in. Let's roll, I said, and we took off.
I'm going to play a promo as well today. This is for a new podcast that's coming called Steam Pod. All to do with steampunk and everything like that. Short stories, a little bit in the vein of Starship Sova and Escape Pod. So check this out. Are you a fan of cogs and goggles? Working on your new mechanical manservant while floating high above in your Zeppelin? Coming June 4, 2008. Steam Pod. Audio Steampunk Magazine. Submissions now being accepted. More details at www.steampod.org. So now we're getting to the end of our first, oh, second really, Oral Delights, as you know, the audio science fiction magazine. I hope it's going okay for you. I hope it's kind of set, set a kind of a precedent how it's going to be in the future. One thing I need to mention as well, and if anyone wants to kind of jump on board and help, the Michael Moorcock video will come out on the 31st of May. That's the end of this month, May. So it will just go in the feed as normal, so everyone will get a chance to have a look at it. But if anyone wants a free... Not free. <laughs> it's all... Sorry. Sorry. It's free already, man. If you want a, an early view at it, and you want to kind of have a look at it and maybe write about it on your blog. I mean, don't actually link it just yet. You know what I mean? By all means, link it when it kind of comes out. But if anyone wants to kind of have a look at the video of me and Kieran doing the interview with Michael Moorcock, I will drop a link to it and please write about it on your blog and just kind of build it up and, you know, <laughs> just make it sound good. <laughs> I'm a freaking hard job. <laughs> no, do you know what I mean? No. So I, I can send you it on thing, watch it, and then write about it on the blog, your blogs, and you know mention that it's going to be released on the thirty first of May. It just kind of generates some activity around it. Do you know what I mean? Because it means, I guess, it means a lot to me and Kieran you know, to meet the, the guy himself, and what a nice guy. Do you know? It's funny talking about Michael Moorcock. You know, he. I keep in touch quite often, do you know what I mean? And it's quite nice to think, bloody hell, you know, you talk to the, the great man himself. And when we went over and did the video, he was mentioning about his, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's got some sort of ailment where he, he, he kind of might have lost his legs or he might have lost his foot. You know, it's, it's I don't know if it's gangrene or something like that. And it what's happened to Keith Roberts in He Lost His Legs, you know. And then Moorcock said, oh, it's fine, it's fine. You know, hopefully I'll not, you know, because he's, he's He's, look, he's got his wife who can care for him and look after him and taking all the drugs. I got an email the other day that he was saying, no, he's, he's lost a bit. <laughs> so I don't know if they've cut a toe off or something like that. And he's actually he said, <laughs> he's funny. He said he lost a toe and I says, you know, we're going to be actually losing our bloody grandmaster. But, you know, slice by slice, they're going to be cutting him off. And he says he tried to get, I think it was a toe, he tried to get it back off the doctors, you know, and they wouldn't let him in, in this hospital in Texas. And he says, there's a, now in Texas, there's, there's forever a little piece of, like, England in Texas. Which I thought was fantastic. So, yes, we might be losing our grandmaster bit by bit. I should knock them Twitters off. That's that ding. Everyone's kind of twittering and mad. Please keep an eye out for us on Twitter as well. Pop over the forums, you know, tell us what you think. Is it going all right? Is it not going all right? 
Don't forget, on Saturday, it'll be John Scalazzi. I will be going in-depth into the world of John Scalazzi. If you want to drop me an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com. The website, starshipsofa.com. Don't forget, if you want to send some flash fiction into the Starship Sofa, I will be more than happy to have a look at that. Did I say 500, 600, 700 words? I can't remember now. I'm not going to go back to the old show and check it out. So, science fiction with the edges blurred, you know, it doesn't have to be kind of purely science fiction, but just, we'll say a 700. Did we say a 600? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> say a 600. Someone tell us that you're totally wrong there. But yes, send some in and I'll have a, certainly have a look at it and maybe get it narrated, play it on the show. Don't forget, if you do like what I'm doing and it's kind of like see I want to turn this Starship sofa especially this Wednesday night's kind of ed- edition into kind of a more of an audio magazine and you like how it's going think about the kind of work I'm putting in drop a donation I would really appreciate it I mean a bloody lot to us to be quite honest the amount of work that's going in now um, you can find links at the website monthly donations and a one-off donation buys a pint of beer everyone <laughs> Mortal. So until next time, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.